Welcome to the Slow Food in the UK podcast. Every episode, we delve into the world of slow food, a global movement that seeks to link the pleasure of good food with a commitment to community, biodiversity, and the environment. This month, we meet Shane Holland, Executive Chair of Slow Food in the UK, to learn more. So I'm Shane Holland. I'm the Executive Chairman of Slow Food in the UK. Um, and the kind of things that I look at are things like policy and education um, and thinking about how we can embed a slow life more into our lives. So, slow Food um, is a fork-to-fork organisation. So we think about where food comes from, why it's important um, and why it's good for us. Um, and think about that from consumers and also from producers. So food should be good, clean and fair. It should be good for us. Um, it shouldn't damage the wider environment. Um, and it should also taste delicious as well. Um, and sometimes when we think about food and we think about food in terms of food ethics, we sometimes miss that kind of point that actually food is there to be enjoyed as well. So we celebrate with food, we get married with food, um, we leave this world with a wake and invariably there is food. So good times and sad times there is food. So fork to fork and farm to table um, are really similes to each other. Um, the reason we often use fork to fork rather than farm to fork is that you can grow food at home as well and lots of people do. But it's the idea that food is produced by people. Um, so food can come from plants but it shouldn't come from factory plants um, and that's really what we talk about fork to fork. It is a human right. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's there in the United Nations Declaration of Rights that we have access to good food. Um, so it is a human right in its purest form. But we don't have access to that. And there are many, many people are hungry. We need to be rethinking entirely our food system and our food access system. Um, and everyone deserves good quality food. There's an idea that eating good food is only for white middle class people and people with wealth. Um, and this is utter nonsense. Um, the kind of food that we're advocating, um, cooking reasonably simple food, is actually the food of the working classes of 50 years ago. Um, if we look at restaurant menus today um, and you see the kind of dishes which are being um, you know, touted as, as the dishes du jour, this is working class food of 50 years ago, um, 40 years ago. This is the food our grandparents cooked every single day. I'm talking about offal, I'm talking about um, pies. Why should um, good food be just a preserve of people who are um, middle class? Um, I also really object to the fact that people who are living in food poverty, and you know, 1.9 million people used food banks last year, um, that they don't have access necessarily to good food. Um, and food banks do a great job in feeding people hungry today. I'm not criticising that. If you're hungry today, then any calories are good um, and people should not be hungry. I'm not criticising that. Um, but how many of those food banks distribute fruit and vegetables? Very few. Um, and the reason for that is fruit and vegetables are perishable. It's difficult to, to handle those. And they also don't get access to those either. So it's not a criticism of the food bank. But what we're actually saying is that people living in poverty should only have food that no one else wants. Um, that we look into supermarkets and there's a donation point and effectively um, it's it's tins of beans or, you know, tins of custard or packets of biscuits. And that is the food um, that an other segment of people, people not like me because I'm not using a food bank, that's the food for them. All of us probably get those kind of pizza delivery leaflets through our door. I'm not going to name a chain. 
Um, but the most famous will give you two pizzas for £18 and trumpets that as an absolute bargain. Um, I would say that is an absolute travesty in terms of, of, of you know, a household budget because there's a notion that, you know, a chicken which can feed a family of four, um, three meals, possibly four meals if you're particularly frugal at £12 is expensive. But two pizzas, which um, are not particularly nutritious, um, have analogue cheese. It's not even proper cheese on top. Um, as somehow cheap. Um, it's our kind of notion of where quality food is. So slow food is around our traditional means of farming. Um, and what do I mean by that? I mean low impact farming. Um, but it's thinking about the soil as a living organism. It's thinking about permaculture. So an entire cycle. Um, so while slow food is not an organic organisation, almost everyone who would follow our principles would be farming organically. Um, it's about using crop rotation. It's about seed saving. Um, it's about um, thinking about the varieties that we are growing and growing food for taste. And that's really, really important. Vast amounts of food in the West um, is grown about storage and longevity on the shelf, not about flavour. We're often told that we need this really intensive food system to feed the world. Only 20% of the world is, is fed in this way. 80% um, of the world is fed in a pretty much slow food system. Um, and we look at that system as not feeding the world. And that's absolute myth. Most food in the world is grown um, in what we'd call almost subsistence farming systems, very, very small farms, feeding immediate families and local villages and local areas. And that is actually the global predominant system. Um, likewise, globally, most food is produced organically. We're told often um, by intensive producers and the agri-tech businesses that we cannot feed the world in this way. Actually, most of the world is fed in this way, so it's a myth to think otherwise. Um, why do these things matter? Well, actually, we need biodiversity. Um, we need biodiversity of varieties. If we think of things like vegetables, we've lost more than 90% of all our vegetable varieties in the last 100 years. Um, in the UK, we had over 4,000 varieties of apple in production. Um, now 70% of all our apples um, come from four varieties in the UK. 70% of those were imported. Um, why does any of this matter? Well, we have disease, we have climate change, um, and that's having a huge effect on varieties. Disease is quite natural, and um, these things have been happening for millennia. But if we lose those varieties, then maybe we've lost the variety which would have had that um, genetic quirk which would be immune. So we can have things like the genetic um, seed bank, which we have in Norway. We can have things like the Millennium Seed Bank, which we have, which is part of Q down in Wakehurst, which we do a lot of work with in slow food, um, which just holds seeds and plant material effectively in a freezer. Um, but it's much better to have them growing because if we do get disease and we've got maybe 2,000 varieties in a freezer, we then have to grow all those varieties um, and then test them to see which ones are immune and which ones aren't. And that can take years. If we think about fruit trees, it may take five, six years for it to get to a decent size to start fruiting. If we have these things just naturally growing because they're delicious and producing delicious things um, and disease grows, it starts going out and maybe we have a disease, say, in apples. Um, and then we'll suddenly see which apple trees get the disease and which ones don't get the disease. We've got it there. Um, and I also think food is there to be interesting. It's, it's really fun to taste different food. It's fun to have those regional varieties. Mm -hmm. 
so the Architaste is a global at-risk register. It's run by Slow Food um, with grateful support from the European Union. There's over 5,000 varieties in, in the Architaste. Um, some of that's animal breeds. Some of that is fruit and vegetable varieties. But there's also um, prepared products in there as well. So there's cakes, there's breads. It's about food with tradition. Um, and it highlights them and celebrates them. Um, and if we talk about something, it's much harder for it to disappear. If we say these things matter, if we say these things are important, if we encourage chefs and we have something called the Chef Alliance as well, and we encourage those chefs to use those products, if we go to regional development agencies and say, you're not even perhaps aware that this exists, but this is really special, you need to keep hold of it. And that's really important. We have regional dishes, we have regional specialities here in the UK. Um, many of them are in the arc of taste. If I think about, you know, where I grew up and thinking about those dishes, we have things like stargazy pie, which is a pie which has sardines, which comes and the heads stick out through the pastry. Um, there is only one place that produces that um, to this day. But actually, they're really, really important. But as you go across the UK, then each region will have, you know, um, those kind of celebrated dishes, maybe a fidget pie if you're in Huntingdonshire or... Um, or, or similar. Um, and they do give a sense of regional identity. I think perhaps in the UK, those things are disappearing perhaps faster than in, than in other places. Um, some of that is as we've had ever greater migration from the countryside to the cities. Um, and with that, we lose the roots um, of, of, our, of our place of home. But there is a, certainly a movement to maintain those. And it also links food to landscape. Again, when we go to the countryside, or maybe we live in the countryside, we look around, it's really easy to forget that the countryside, no matter where we live in the world, looks as it does because of food and farming. So living here in the UK, we're famous for our you know, rolling green hills, you know, the green, the green land of England. I, that is completely artificial. It looks like that because of food and farming. So the arc of taste maintains that. Um, and if we think about things like, say, the South Downs, um, just south of London, um, it looks as it does because of one breed of sheep, because of the South Down sheep, which was particularly adapted to eating the kind of heathy grassland that grew there. If you go to the Lake District in the north of England, the Lake District is one of the wettest places on earth. It has more than 20 feet of rain a year. Most ruminants don't want to be out in that rain. But one breed of sheep um, called the Herdwick, um, which is a famous sheep. It was popularised by Enid Blyton. She tried to save the sheep. Um, the Herdwick, I guess, is kind of the cockroach of the sheep world. Um, if we ever have a nuclear war, then cockroaches and the Herdwick will survive. Because um, the Herdwick doesn't mind getting wet hooves. It doesn't mind getting wet, wet wool. Um, it's probably the only sheep in the world that doesn't mind that. So it's out there in 20 feet of rain every year, um, and it's grazing on that landscape. And the reason that we have the Lake District that so many of us love to visit, and people visit it from all over the world because it's so beautiful, looks entirely because of that one breed of sheep. Um, so we need that um, animal there, um, and there needs to be a value for that um, to maintain that. We can actually value the, the price of Herdwick lamb. It tastes delicious, they eat lots and lots of herbs. But yes, it's going to be more expensive. And yes, it's going to be more expensive um, than some imported frozen New Zealand lamb, um, which you might find in the supermarket. It's about saying that those animals should have the most natural possible lives. Um, so ruminant animals should be on grass. 
if we think about beef and the, um, a huge amounts written about beef in terms of climate change and so forth, the majority of beef animals eaten in the West are not on grass. Um, they don't eat grass. They, they're fed corn. They're fed soya. Much of that soya comes from the um, from the Brazilian rainforest, which is cut down. Um, it is incredibly um, climate damaging um, and is not the kind of meat that we would certainly be advocating in slow food. Um, but if you take a grass-fed animal and have it on grass, um, be that the Herdwick up in the Lake and um, Lake District, um, or if you're thinking about cattle down in you know in the dairy heartlands in the southwest of England, um, then that's a very different proposition. Um, those hooves also sequester carbon, um, so the hooves are pushing the grass back down into the land, um, and those animals are living a, a really really good lifestyle. Um, they're happy. Um, they live long lives. Um, if you think about a, a kind of an intensive produced chicken now, um, it gets from egg um, to to full kill weight, um, a horrible term, but that's the term the industry uses, in about 30 days. Um, if a human baby um, were to get to the same size um, in terms of increase, um, then in 30 days it would go from a human baby being born to a 900-pound individual in 30 days. That gives you an idea of just how rapid that growth is. I mean, it sounds absurd, um, but that's not natural. Um, and it also doesn't allow very much flavour either. But I would suggest that um, if we are going to eat meat, then we eat all the animal, um, that we don't just eat the prime cuts. Um, if you go to the supermarkets, you'll see you know a whole row of chicken breasts. You won't see many legs. Um, if you're looking for lamb, it'll be very hard for you to find neck of lamb. Um, so let's eat the entirety of the animal, including the offal, um, respect it, ensure those animals have had the longest life possible. Um, that's good for them. Um, it's also good for flavour. Um, and that they have the most natural diet possible, that they have the least inputs possible. Um, and they're in their natural landscape. Um, and I think that is a pretty good way to go. Um, if you see beef, if you see lamb, you only see this kind of red slab. Um, it doesn't look like an animal at all. And I don't think it's um, it's any kind of um, surprise that actually when you go and see chickens in the supermarket, you only really see the breasts now. Um, because, it's, again, it doesn't actually look like a bird. Um, you can buy whole chickens, you can buy legs, but they're, they're very much on the bottom shelf or kind of tucked away and there's much less of them. Um, I think it's probably natural for us to be slightly squeamish about death. I think, you know, we, we don't want to think about killing things. Um, but if we wish to eat meat um, and we choose to eat meat, then something is being killed. Why is a chicken four pounds? Why is a chicken 12 pounds? I think actually I'm going to turn turn the question around and say actually not that the chicken shouldn't be 12 pounds. It's why is the chicken for three pounds, 54 pounds? Um, and that's the kind of question we should be asking. Um, and that does come to some kind of uncomfortable um, truths. But then we're all eating far too much meat. Um, and all of us could be do with eating far less meat as, and as an absolute rule. Um, even if we, if we choose to eat meat, I do choose to eat meat. I think we should all be eating far better quality meat, um, but less of it. And we, we have a whole campaign in Slow Food called Slow Meat, which addresses that. Slow food um, in the UK um, is constantly evolving um, and it changes um, really with people's needs. So we've probably never been so active and never been so busy. 
um, particularly over the COVID outbreaks. We've been running lots and lots of hands-on projects. Um, we have a wonderful project there called the Potato Project, where we've been diverting um, potatoes which would have otherwise gone to landfill. Um, and we got those potatoes to people in need who were hungry and into food banks. Um, we've been teaching them to cook. Um, we're just launching a cookery book for people who are um, using food banks, so people who've got perhaps poor food skills or lack knowledge, or maybe they're just getting food that they wouldn't normally cook with. Um, what do we do with that? So um, one of our groups, the Ocean Group, is is launching a cookery book, which is really exciting, which is for, um, for food bank users. Um, we also run cooking sessions. Um, so we teach both kids to cook, but also adults as well. So so many of us lack the confidence to cook. Um, and that's for lots of reasons. Some of us were never taught to cook at schools. Um, some of us believe that we don't have enough time. And I'm going to be really careful when I say that some people are working three jobs um, and really don't have a lot of time. But we've never had so much leisure time. So the idea that the typical British household doesn't have time to cook just simply isn't true. We've never watched so much television. Um, there's an idea that food is expensive and that actually cooking um, is an expensive thing to do. Um, and that can be the case if you don't have a lot of ingredients at home and you're going to cook something quite complicated. But actually home cooking is a surefire way of actually saving money. Um, and we've got a great project whereby the first thing we teach people to cook is a chocolate cake. And we cook that chocolate cake in a saucepan. Um, and the reason we cook in a saucepan is because the saucepan is a cake tin with a handle. Um, and the reason we do that is that lots and lots of people just don't have equipment. Um, a lot of our work we do is education work. And that's been really effective in the last six months because schools have been closed. Um, but typically we teach kids where their food comes from. So, you know, we pick up the vegetables and we say, what is this? And, um, you know, kids don't, they really don't understand what vegetables look like. They haven't seen them. Um, everyone knows what a carrot looks like. But when we start moving beyond that and pick up a celeriac or we pick up a kohlrabi, um, and every child loves a kohlrabi because this looks like an alien. Um, it's a very cool vegetable. So by teaching kids to grow the food and then actually cook it and eat it, they're much more likely to eat it themselves. Um, and then they go home and they start asking mum and dad for the food as well. And that starts that kind of connection. And even if that only starts really, really slowly, even if we get just a couple of new vegetables um, in there and create that spark of curiosity, that's got to be a really good thing. If food's about love. It's about empowerment. Um, people are not bad people. People know that actually cooking food is a good thing to do. Um, but they self-exclude from food, and many of us self-exclude from food. For more info on the slow food movement and how you can get involved, visit slowfood.org.uk.